My guest this week has written for some of the greatest sitcoms of the last 45 years. From the Vernon Shirley to Give Me a Break to the Fresh Prince to A Different World to Boy Meets World, Mr. Miller worked on some of the most popular sitcoms of the 80s and 90s. He also wrote and was the co-author of the number one Amazon-rated satire novel, Impossible. I'm happy to introduce Gary H. Miller. Hello. So you said that you I have to talk to you, call you Gary H. Miller, because there already is a Gary Miller. What 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 did he do? Uh, I think it's actually it was the comic named Mule Deer, uh, and his real name is Gary Miller. Uh, so they just told me I had to use the H when I just wanted to use Gary Miller. So I've been Gary H. You know since I started, and when they asked me what the H stands for, I say Hollywood. It's it's how Gary yeah Gary Mule Deer is a comedian. Good friends with C. Martin. So the first question I always ask, uh, what, what's your earliest television memory? Oh, well, uh, I grew up on in the 60s, the black and white stuff. I think that the uh, the most influential sitcom that I watched, which kind of helped me do what I've done in my career, was the old uh, Sergeant Bilko sitcom, which was called, I believe, You'll Never Get Rich back in the day. And Phil Silvers was amazing. And in fact, um, I, I think some of the shows probably still hold up in terms of its humor and comedic value. But there was one thing about Phil Silvers, just the way he, 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 he performed, how he delivered comedy. And at, at one point, you know, later on, years later, when I was the showrunner of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I took Will Smith to my office and I said, look, we got 22 minutes to tell this story. We've got to tell it fast. So we don't want any delays. That will kill a sitcom, you know, dead air space. So I want you to sit and watch this guy. And I played him old tapes of uh, Phil Silvers and You'll Never Get Rich, you know, Sergeant Bilko. Um, the other early, of course, is the, cla the classics, um, uh, Lucy, you know. Uh, and, and again, uh, I think most of these are black and white at the time. Uh, I grew up in, in Brooklyn in a, in a three-room three, uh, three walk-up. Uh, I'm working class. My dad was a roofer. And we lived in the back of the walk-up. And the elevated subway was 12 feet from my window. I mean, you could literally spit on it from my window. And by living in this environment, every 20 minutes, the train would roar through and you couldn't hear anything. So if you're watching a television show, you'd miss important plot points. And, and I, I, my joke is, to this day, I don't know why Lucy and Ethel were in that vat of grapes. <laughs> but and in fact, in life, that the train was a part of our life and it made so much noise that you couldn't hear stuff. It wasn't just key plot points in sitcoms. It was right. if, your, if your mother said something, you couldn't hear what you said, you know, that kind of thing. But we all got, you know, we, that's how we lived. The, the, the elevated subway was part of our neighborhood. It was almost, it was like the monster that loomed behind us and all that. So, um, you know, it's a very, you know, looking back, of course, and I've used that in my writing, you know, this environment. I just finished my screenplay called 1961, which takes place on that street, uh, you know, in Brooklyn. And it's, you know, somewhat autobiographical, but it's, it's all about that life uh, and those days, in a sense. And there are many, many television references, you know, even in the kids' dialogue, uh, you know, they'll refer to stuff like, you know, they see on, on television. Behind you, you have a picture of Mickey Mantle. Uh, you were not a Brooklyn Dodgers fan? No, no. I'm, I was the only, I'm the one from Brooklyn who was not a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Even though I grew up in the Dodgers, we were there. 
And my earliest recollections, of course, were I was able with my friends as young as eight years old, jump on the subway and go to Ebbets Field, which is about 20 minutes from where I, I grew up. And I watched the Dodgers. But my older brother, Bruce, was a Yankee fan. I don't know why, but he's the guy. I, he inculcated that in me. And then, you know, the Yankees just demolished the Dodgers every year. And I'd have to go out into the street if the Yankees won and kind of fight all my Brooklyn Dodger uh, pals, you know, because they were, they were upset, you know. But uh, Mantle, you know, was greatest. And I, I have a great picture, one of my favorite pictures that I took of Mickey Mantle in the Yankee Stadium parking lot in the late 60s. Okay. I'm still a diehard, and we died hard this year. I'm a Met fan. I know what it's like. Oh, listen, I taught school uh, right near Shea Stadium, uh, uh, 94th uh, by, by the airport, LaGuardia. Mm-hmm. So I taught school. In fact, I took the kids one day on a trip to Shea Stadium. I think it was the day Seaver struck out 1,000 batters. What was it, 18, 21, something like that? Uh, 19, including the last 10. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it was 1970. Yeah, I was teaching school. Yeah, so you went to Brooklyn College? Yeah. And what was your major? Whoa, well, well, this was Vietnam War time. And so uh, I started, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, uh, I started off as a uh, pre-law major, and that didn't work out. Then I did political science, and I didn't even know what that was about. And then finally, you know, as the war progressed and we started losing guys from the neighborhood, um, one of the deferments was for teaching. So I said, well, I better do that, you know, because I don't want to go fight this war. Uh, And so I became a teacher uh, because I didn't have bone spurs, so I couldn't get out of it. Um, So I became a teacher. I got a deferment. Uh, but then a year or two later, they came up with that lottery, and I had a low number, and then fortunately, the war ended. But that was some time back then, you know. I remember sitting in biology lab, looking across the quadrangle, and the students for a democratic society were taking over the registrar's building. So it was, it was a, you know, the 60s, I don't have to tell you, it's just an unbelievable decade uh, in, in our history. You know, I grew up in the middle of it. You talk about the music and, and, and the politics and, and everything else. Do you think it's more strained now than then? You mean the society? Yeah. I I do. I do. I think, one, maybe because it is. And secondly, because there's just so much um, access to everything. And, and, and everybody's involved, you know, with... with the advent of social media, now everybody is out of the woodwork and anybody can say what they want, anybody can hurt anybody else. And, and, and you know, you know, back in the day, uh, you, you know, it's interesting is when I used to write sitcom, it would air a certain night and people watched it at home. And I didn't, I couldn't see them, you know, I couldn't hear from them. You know, we had 80, right? Tell you what you should And back when I started, uh, I wrote those times, uh, not just me, but all of us, you know, uh, 15 million people watched an episode, you know? And, you know, you can't really imagine all those people sitting and watching something that you wrote. So uh, you're kind of distanced from it, you know? That's why I think uh, stand-up comedy is so wonderful because they're right there and you get that immediate reaction. Uh, but today, you know, anybody weighs in and, and critics you or, or criticizes you or, or says whatever they want or, or, 
and you get hate. I mean, I've written articles where I've gotten hate mail just, you know, based on your articles that would you, you would have never had, you know, previously just to the advent of social media. Yeah, people were emboldened. There used to be letters to the editor, and there would be like 10 people, and, and then you'd sit there and go, why are these 10 people writing to a newspaper about what they said? Right. I'll give you an example. I wrote an episode of Bosom Buddies, which was uh, very close to my heart, and uh, basically um, uh, Peter Scolari's character, Henry, he had uh, gone to a high school, and there was a, a deaf, uh, hearing-impaired girl in the high school, and she asked him to the prom, and he kind of rejected her. And then now it's the reunion some years later and she shows up, right? So it's about that. And it's about them, about, uh, you know, uh, Henry making amends with her and all that. So it was a nice episode. I won an award for it. And uh, I got a call in the office from a mother of a deaf girl who, who wanted to thank me. And that was unheard of. I mean, you never had any contact with your audience whatsoever, you know? And I thought it was wonderful. And what was interesting about that episode was the same episode, uh, I, I wrote a, a line about a city in Ohio, a little disparaging line, and, 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 and the mayor of the city demanded I come and apologize to the city. <laughs> so, so the same episode got those you know, two, two uh, extreme reactions. The yeah, mayors of the city. Always it, was, it was Shaker Heights, Ohio. Shaker Heights, Ohio. You know, and uh, I, I won't repeat the joke because... Uh, don't make me come apologize. You're teaching, and uh, in like 1970, what makes you decide that you want to go across the country and become a television writer? I wasn't enjoying teaching. Uh, it was rough. I mean, you know, the uh, city school system in the early 70s was, it was chaotic. It was rough. Uh, we didn't make a whole lot of money either, you know. Uh, then I just felt, is this going to be it for me? You know, I mean, is this... This is going to be my life. I'm going to do this and then, you know, someday retire. And I just felt maybe I have more somewhere, you know, but I really had no talent, had no, no musical talent, nothing else. You know, I didn't know what to do. And my wife at the time, Karen, she said, look, you're so funny. Uh, why don't you try writing a television script? And I, 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 that, that's ridiculous. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're here and that's there. It's a different, different, different world. Um, but it kind of, uh, set, set, set in my mind. And I, I went to a local library to take out a book on script writing and all they had was the BBC books and, and the characters are down the left side of the page. Right. So I used that and I wrote a MASH script, a spec MASH script, because MASH was a, a program. And then I said, what do I do now? So I said, send it to an agent. So I looked up for agents in the, in the phone book and I sent it to Elaine Markson agency in New York. And just said, here, here it is, right? I didn't know. And she writes me back. She says, this is very good. I'm sending it on to the producers of MASH. Well, I'm naive. And I say to Karen, I, I, said, I guess we're going to go to California and I'm going to be a writer on MASH now because you know, I didn't know. And of course, it came back and they didn't read it. And, you know, that's the way the business works. You don't get in that way. But uh, the seed was planted. And then I started just pumping out spec scripts for all the sitcoms that were on at the time. Welcome Back, Carter, Three's Company, Barney Miller, you know, on and on and on. And uh, I started sending them out, you know, waiting for, for, for some reaction, which didn't come. And then uh, I saw in the, uh, an article by uh, 
uh, Fred Sildman was the head of one of the networks. He said, we need new blood. We need new blood. So I sent him a letter. I said, listen, if you need new blood, here I am. Give me a break, right? I don't hear from him. And one day I get a call from a guy, uh, an executive who says, Fred wanted us to call you. I said, what? He says, yeah. They said, our two big shows now are Laverne and Shirley and, uh, and, and Happy Days. Write a script for one of those and we'll see what happens. I said, okay. So I write a, a, a Laverne and Shirley. Don't hear anything. So I start sending Gary Marshall funny letters telling him why he needs to hire me, right? I don't know if he ever receives them. I just send them out to him, right? One day uh, at the lowest personal point of my life, because uh, our first child was born uh, uh, very, very, very sick. So it, it was a really, really stressful time for us. I was teaching school. I was in the gym. I was a health education teacher. And uh, they said, there's a call from you in the office, Mr. Miller. I said, okay. And I thought it was the hospital because my kid had been sick the night before. And it was Gary Marshall's office offering me to come out and be a staff writer on the run show. And um, it's unbelievable. So it's, uh, I always say it's like, you know, the, uh, the uh, Muppet movie where Kermit goes to Hollywood. Well, that was me. And you're a teacher. And we talk about teaching. And I remember uh, I, I had, they said crazy Mr. Miller because I used to sit and write, write all the time. Look what happened to him. So I was in the halls one day. Uh, it was my last day as, as a teacher there. And one of the teachers stopped me and says, Gary, Gary, what are you doing? you got eight years in the system. You can retire in 10 more years. You could be retired. Where are you going? And meanwhile, you know, the kids are all crazy, shooting each other. Right? And uh, I said, Charlie, I'm going to be a writer on the number one show on all of television. I gotta do this, and uh, I, I did it. And when you got there, you wrote uh, the "What Do You Do with a Drunken Sailor" episode of Vernon Charlie. Yes. yes. Did you pitch that, or was that assigned to you? Uh, no, I pitched that. I, I pitched that to Chris Thompson, the late Chris Thompson. Yeah. Um, a lot of my stuff, for some reason, I've had, you know, they call these serious comedies and all that, where like I did a hearing impaired, hearing impaired, couple of episodes like that. I, I, I did the, the drunken episode. I won an award for uh, Boy Meets World where the, the, the lead characters, they, they get into trouble because of alcohol. So uh, I don't shy away from that. So, uh, uh, you know, I mean, my wheelhouse is real funny stuff, but I, I like to I like to do the serious stuff too. Okay, so you were there for, you were there on the Vern Shirley for the 79-80 season? Yeah, just, just, just I got there towards the tail end of the, the 79-80 uh, season. And then uh, I, I, I wrote an Angie script, the Donna Pesco show. Uh, and I was kind of entrenched in Paramount. You know, Paramount had some, you know, Gary Marshall himself had five five sitcoms in the top 10 at one point, which uh, is a record that'll probably stand like the Miami Dolphins season. Um, and, and so I did, a, uh, I did an Angie script. Uh, and and I, coincidentally, Donna Pesco, years later, was a co-star in a movie that I wrote for HBO called Glory Years. So uh, I, I did an Angie, and then uh, uh, Chris Thompson hired me on Bosom Buddies. So I did the second season of Bosom Buddies. Reunion, that's the episode that you were talking about earlier. Yes, yes. And The Grandfather, parody of The Godfather. Yes, right. Yeah. So you were there, you were on staff at Bosom Buddies. Yeah, yeah, I was on staff. Um, 
uh, and, it, and it, listen, it, it, it's a, it was a great show. We only lasted two seasons, and people still talk about it. And uh, I got to work with two of the most talented guys who have ever been a team in the in the business. How ABC let them split up, I'll never know. But of course, Hanks uh, did go on to do uh, a little bit of his stuff. And and uh, Peter Scolari is is very very was very very funny. I love Peter. Uh, I, and again, pound for pound, one wasn't better than the other. Together they were magnificent. One of the one of the shows where the stuff you write gets better on the stage. It just gets better and better. Those guys were just great, uh, and, and and it was a joy to work on that show with them. Uh, with all that talent, and unfortunately, you know, years later, I was a, a consulting producer on Reba, and I made sure that Peter got a, a part in one of the episodes. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, tragically, Peter passed away recently, and as, as did Chris Thompson too. So, you know, when you get to my age, um, we start losing a lot of our, our, our people. Nine to five, uh, you worked on that. That was the Peter Bonner's year when he was the boss. Yes, the, Mr. Hart. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Were you yeah. a fan of the Bob Newhart show? Uh, so so. Yeah. Did you remember Al Jean and Mike Rice when they Reese coming in there? No, I wasn't there with them. I actually worked with Al Jean and, uh, and Mike Rice uh, on an ill-fated show that we all worked on called Homeboys in Outer Space, which it, it may be it may be listed as uh, you know one of those shows you know in the history of television. Uh, but yeah, I work with them on that, but not on not on active work. Okay. Rita Marino was you know was the lead in the years that I did. And Dolly Parton's sister. Dolly Parton's sister, uh, Rachel Dennison. Uh yeah. And and Jane Fonda was the executive producer. I actually like the episode, um, I think it was in your season, where they, they're doing um sing, singing telegrams and they get arrested and they get thrown in jail because they think they're hookers with uh-huh. Fran with Fran Drescher. Oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah, Fran Drescher yeah, is the hooker in the episode. Right, right. And then you went on to a show that this is one of the first shows I remember I watched every week was Give Me a Break. Yes, I did uh, two seasons on Give Me a Break. Yeah. All right, so you wrote, the first episode you wrote was the first episode of the third season, the groupie with uh, Andy Gibb. Yeah, yeah. Now, was he there because he was dating Carrie Michelson, or did he meet Carrie Michelson while shooting the show? Well, do you want the scoop? Uh, Carrie's still with us. So he, he's not. Andy Gibbs not. <laughs> um, the real, the real uh, story of his. We did. We had Duran Duran line. Okay. That script was supposed to be with Duran Duran, and for some reason it fell through. And at the last second, Andy Gibb came on board, and uh, he kind of romanced Carrie for the, the week that he was there. And you know, whatever happened, happened. You know, those things do happen. So. Uh, but I don't think I don't think they had a relationship prior. Well, I just wanted to know if that's how he got the guest starring role, or they met on the show. On the show, no, I don't. I I think you know he just had that hit that hit record that year, and and again Duran Duran was also really really hot at the time, but they that didn't work out, and so uh, next thing you know is Andy Gibbs. And you wrote a very famous episode, Baby of the Family. Yes. Do you get a lot of? Do people ask you for comment about that episode? 
No, <laughs> and I'm glad you just mentioned it. No, not really. I, you know, when you talk about give me a break, it's not, you know, if I say bosom buddies, they go, oh, I say Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you know, everybody knows it. But give me a break was kind of, uh, you know, it was this little engine that could, you know, it, it did about five seasons. Uh, but but no, no, I don't get any accolades for that. Well, because it's like it was like the number 80th most unforeseen thing in television history when he shows up at the church in blackface. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm trying to think back. I'm not sure blackface was my idea. I think that the, uh, it was probably Artie Julian's. An episode I really do like that you wrote also is Monkey See, Monkey Do, when they all leave the apartment because they all get mad at the chief and they all move into Carrie Michelson's apartment. Right. Well, I think, as you know, uh, a lot of times the, the, the written by credits that you'll see on an episode uh, are not your drafts, you know, in a sense. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we call it, for want of a better term, gangbanging a script, where everybody will work on it and then we'll put somebody's name on it, you know? I think uh, Chuck Lorre is famous for doing that, where everybody writes a script and then they choose a writer to have the name. So that wasn't mine. I mean, uh, the groupie, you know, baby of the family, the original drafts were mine. Katie, I did a lot of Carrie Michelson stuff, Katie's Commitment, uh, Katie, Katie and the Older Man. Um, yeah, so th those, are, those are my solo, solo scripts. How hard was it in, the, in your second season dealing with uh, Dolph Sweet basically dying during the season? Didn't know. Really? Did you watch him? And he's like thinner and thinner. I, 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 when I heard Dolph passed away, I was in, sh I was shocked. I didn't know he was sick. No, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. See, I, it's, it's been a while, uh, and maybe I was gone from the show in the season you're referring to, where Dolph apparently looked ill. You know, so I might have. I, I left the show in '84 and went on to HBO. Oh, okay, because it was the 84-85 season. That yeah, was. I, was, I was already working at HBO. And you were working on First and Ten. Yeah, I did a, <laughs> I did a, a freelance script for them. Um, I just finished my second year and Give Me a Break. This, the producers loved the script, and they said, we want to hire you to write all our scripts. So the, they did, and, and I did. And so I, I kind of revamped that show. Uh, when I took it over, it was kind of very broad uh, and a lot of nudity, a lot of, you know, sketchy stuff and all that. And I said, this is pro football. Let's inject some reality into it. And so, you know, we dealt with some, uh, you know, issues like, you know, players not being able to read, uh, steroid addiction. We used John Matuzak, the, the, the former great, in a three-episode arc where he dies on the field from steroid abuse. And in real life, John died from afterwards of steroid abuse so uh, you know life imitated art so to speak and uh delta burke was still on the show at the time delta burke was in the show when i took over and then i brought in the well the producers hired oj simpson and i wrote him into the show as as an aging running back and then another thing again dealing with reality i uh, i decided that he would since his career was over he would become the first black general manager in the league. And, and that's what, what was his role with the team. And what was he like on the set? Fine. <laughs> you know, we're getting into this area here. I don't know how no. how, how deep you want to dive, but uh, obviously 
people have asked me, did you know, did you, was he violent? You know, I mean, I, I was, uh, I met with the attorneys for the uh, pro prosecution and civil trial, and they wanted to know how violent was he. And said, It'd be a lie if I got on the stand and said he was violent. He, I didn't see any violence, um, at least not on the set, at least not in my association with him personally. Uh, you know, but I had to, you know, I had to wrangle real football players. There were there were a lot. There was a lot of physical stuff on the set because these guys used to. You want OJ anecdotes? I have, so it's up to you. I mean, I'll take a, a funny OJ anecdote. I'll give you a funny one. This is this is my favorite, a funny OJ anecdote. So, um, towards the, you know, he, he he was doing a couple of seasons and his contract was up, and uh, the producers were having trouble renegotiating the contract. So the producer came to me and he, the executive producer came and he says, "Look, can you write OJ out of the show?" And I said, "Well, you know, I wrote him in the show. I guess I can write him out of the show. Not that I wanted to do that." So he just nodded and said, okay. At the same time, OJ came over and he says, you think you could write a different version of the show? I said, yeah, well, let's do maybe a, a baseball version. You know, same, you know, same premise, really. So OJ gets a meeting at MGM for us to pitch the pilot idea with OJ, you know, starring. And I pitch it, OJ just sitting next to me on the couch. And I'm thinking this pitch is not going well. And next thing you know is the executive uh, uh, says, this is a show we should do. Because she wanted to be in business with OJ Simpson, I think. It was the easiest sale I've ever made. So I go off to write the pilot. And I get a call from OJ's attorney, Skip. He says, listen, Gary, um, OJ would like co-writing credit on this pilot. I said, really? Well... I'll tell you what, tell him he only has to work about two hours a day with me, and I'll do the I'll do the major part of it. He says, No, 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 you don't understand. He doesn't want to actually write it. He just wants the writing credit. I said, Why? He said, Because his mother would be very proud of him if he were in the writer's guild. And I said, He's already in the football hall of fame. Isn't she proud enough? And he said, Look. You either agree to this, or this deal is going to blow up. And I said, okay, Skip, you tell O.J. Simpson that I will give him half the writing credit on the pilot that I write. If he tells the people in the Football Hall of Fame that half his yardage is mine. <laughs> he said, really? I said, really. And uh, that was that. And, and things happened. He went on to get a big job at NBC as a commentator, and so nothing. The pilot died, and you know, I, I didn't even write it, you know. But that's uh, that's a funny OJ. Because I know you're a big sports fan. There's never been a successful show about a baseball team. Like they tried with Bowl Four and yeah. Hardball. Well, what kind of show? I mean, you'd think it a, a drama, a sitcom, a sitcom, you know. You know, unless you're doing a one camera with a, you know, when this, the action, you can't, it's got to be about everything else, you know, and, and, and those, we did first and 10, we used stock footage of the old USFL, and we shot a lot of stuff, a lot of key stuff. Like I mentioned, John Tuzak dying on the field. We shot it up here at the College of Valencia, you know, and, and, and we had our guys in pads and we actually shot, shot the scene. But most of that, I mean, that's so expensive. You can't, you can't pack the, you can't put crowds in the in the arena. You know how much that would cost, you know. 
So you got to you, you have to do cutaways and things like that. But I don't know. Um, maybe just because nobody's hit it yet. And, uh, I did a pilot for Fox about a major league baseball player who used cocaine and was banished from the big leagues and 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 started and was uh, relegated to do some community service in the school. But it was about a school. It wasn't about baseball. I, I don't know. Didn't that, didn't the uh, Botchko have a wasn't there a musical about baseball? It was a comedy drama called Bay City Blues. Oh, was that a baseball team? Yeah, that was the minor league team. Right, right. I think maybe because it's 25 players and it's too many characters. Yeah, it, it, I think the, the logistics is it would still, you'd have to hone in on one or two or three people. And then then, then really, it's not, it's not, it's not baseball. It's not, you know. Right, exactly. And look, they have great baseball movies, right? Like, God, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and, and, and movies that have baseball as a theme, like Field of Dreams, you know, on and on and on. But of course, you're talking about a feature budget and not, uh, I, I tried to do a golf pilot that took place in a golf driving range. And even that's hard because you can't, you got, you, you know, the driving range, you, you can only shoot the driving range. You can't, you can't shoot the rest of it. So, uh, and you can't go on, the, you could go on the course occasionally, but even that logistically, it's just it's too, too difficult. Okay. And then, you joined a different world in the, was there a fourth season? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, 1990. Right. And how was that experience as compared to the other shows you worked on? Well, a different world, uh, you, you know, Saturday Night Live used to do sketches about a different world because it was such a serious serious show. It dealt with such serious, serious themes. Um and I found that that was what the show had become in a sense. And it's also different because it was my first show with an entire black cast. It took place at a black college. And, and there are different sensibilities that you need when you're writing for a show like this, which has such social and cultural significance. It's not, you know, it's not Buzz of Buddies. It's, you know, it's not Kip, you know, Kip falling down the elevator shift, you know. And so what I found in a different world was it gave me the opportunity to write some really dramatic stuff, you know, under the guise of it being a sitcom. And uh, I, I think one of the first episodes I wrote was about a restricted country club because that was happening that year in the PGA where they were going to hold their event at a restricted country club. And so I wrote the episode about that. And then the next season I wrote a racial violence episode, which really, uh, to this day, still get reaction to. Uh, and in fact, it was so loaded that I'm not sure you could do it today because of what it involved, what it showed, the language, and what was said. Did you get a lot of notes from the network on that one? That was a, a labor of love for me and uh, accent on the labor. It was a very difficult week. It was a very difficult shoot. Uh, everybody was so emotionally involved in that show. Um, and, 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 and my job was to try and present both sides, both viewpoints one was racist and one was not racist. And the racist stuff was just that. And uh, there was uh, resentment 
to portraying that. And I just felt, look, we're going to tell the story in, in reality, then this is what we need to do. You know? it, it was, you know, again, in hindsight, it was a great episode. I'm proud of it. Uh, but um, it was difficult. Very difficult. Fresh Prince. A yeah. lot, lighter, lot lighter in tone than A Different World. Right. You wrote one of the funny scenes um, that I just remember cracking up when Hillary's fiance goes off the bungee jump. No, spoiler alert if you haven't, but it's 30 years. So I'm laughing now. It's my, you know, it's, I think I, it's my favorite scene that I've ever written. Uh, I watch it over and over again. I, I, and again, object, I know I wrote it, but I objectively watched those actors perform that scene. And, and, and remember, the scene is shot, you're looking at them. There was one cutaway to the television where uh, Trevor jumps off the, the, the cliff, but you, you don't hear, you don't see him again. You just hear the splat. And then it's camera on them. There's like 20 minutes of them just reacting, not even any any dialogue. And then finally Will says, uh, I, I'm no bungee expert, but I don't think he's supposed to be banging into the ground like that. You know? And then, and then uh, yeah, I, I love that. I love that scene. And I love how Hillary is just, you know, Hillary just doesn't understand. And says, Please stand by. Go, oh, now the president is going to come on and interrupt my proposal. And then the, the cut, she's wearing her wedding dress. A lot of people miss it. The cut is to them coming back from the funeral. And we dyed that white wedding dress into black. So she's actually wearing the same dress. It's her wedding dress that she's wearing when she comes in after the funeral. So, so it's and, the same. and her big question is, now, does this make me a widow or? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a great, you know, fun, fun show. That that was part of the uh, first show that I wrote as, as I took over, the, uh, as I became showrunner. It was an hour, and hours are tough to do. You know, I mean, the sitcom has a certain format, and when you try and do an hour, all you got to do is look at Cheers or Seinfeld, and when they stretch to an hour, it's tough. And, and sometimes it doesn't work. I did this hour. I think it kind of worked, but you know, uh, they're difficult to do. Uh, but but that scene was was, was precious, it really was. And it was ba- it was basically the show was about when I took on the show. I said, you know, Will Smith can't, Will can't be this high school uh, goofball anymore. We're going to put him in college. We're going to get him a girlfriend. We're going to you know did all that. So um, you know uh, that that's how Tyra Banks came to the show. She became uh, Will's girlfriend in that first first uh, episode, and that was funny. Carlton's expression when she, when uh, she sees him for the first time, and you know, automatically runs home and gives him a hug, and he and he starts jumping up and down. He says, "No, no, no!" <laughs> it's like it's like not this Will did this to me again, you know. And it's just because I mean, Carlton was so in love, he, he met this beautiful girl, Jackie, and he, he this heartless and then boom uh will did it again also it was funny when jazz looks looks at um the second actress to play the mother and goes man ever since you had a baby you look different yeah i didn't know i I walked into a real uh difficult situation where they wanted to get rid of uh, the original mother janet uh, you um who was loved and, and, and be loved and, 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 and because of a personal issue that Will Smith had with her, uh, she was not going to be the mother anymore. 
And so I had to start the season with a new mother. Um, and I thought, how do I deal with that? Do I do like some shows do where they don't even address it? And, you know, I mean, the audience is not dumb. They know it's a different woman, right? Different, right? And then we had, we had some protests from people who didn't like the, the change in mothers. So I thought, let's just do it this way. And I had, Je I had Jez make that line. And if you watch the moment, after he says that line, Will looks directly at the camera. And, and, you know, and he says basically, okay, we're, the joke is over. Now we're on our way. You know, we're not going to dress it anymore. And that's how we go. And, and, you know, listen, NBC let me do it, um, which, is, which, was, which was good. I read that this is an interesting way. Uh, George Burns on Burns and Allen, he, was, he stopped the scene. I mean, this is written, obviously. But he stops the scene and he, and he puts his arm around a guy. He goes, this is the guy who will be playing Harry Von Zell from now on. And then that's what he did. That's great. That's good. You know, you know. Uh, I don't. I don't remember my history. Bewitched, didn't they? They put in a new Darren, and they never even addressed it. Right? Never addressed it. No. Never addressed it. So, you know, tell, listen, the audience. The audience. The audience does. You want the audience to, you know, uh, believe things that are going on. But at the same time, you can't insult their intelligence. You know. So that was all. And we broke. You know. We, we would break the, that wall, the fourth wall, uh, occasionally you know, on that show. M is for the Many Things is such a funny episode also uh, with uh, Pam Greer. And it's funny when they're talking about who would beat who, Cleopatra Jones versus – and she was Cleopatra Jones. Exactly. Well, that, that – I that see, that was a controversial episode because uh, I wrote it. It was the season – I think it was the season ender. And um, – it was my homage to the graduate, right. but I was taking the lead character, Will Smith, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and have him sleep with an older woman—not only just an older woman, his girlfriend's mother. So you can imagine the heat that I had to face with that episode. I, I just thought it was fun. Um, I just felt it was a, a thing that we could do and did. But the theme, the, the the ending of it was more about family and about you know because part of the episode was that Pam Grier's character had a relationship with Uncle Phil, and she was flirting with him, and he finally told her off and said, "I'm happy with my wife," so on and so forth. So, you know, uh, I think I think I think we had the right message at the end, but it was because it was my homage to the graduate because her name in it was was Mrs. Roberts, and. I give you credit for showing restraint and not having Will Smith say, Mrs. Robertson, are you trying to seduce me? Okay. I should, have, I should have. Oh, all right. No. I think no, I think it's good that he didn't. I, yeah, it just when when his girlfriend says, did, 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 how could you sleep with my mother? He says, Did you ever see my mother make it? You ever see your mother make it? Just stop. <laughs> so, you know. Um yeah. Listen, you make choices. Sometimes they're not right. Sometimes they're, they're okay. Sometimes you get fired from it. <laughs> it was funny. I was watching it, you know, while the show's, um, it's on, you know, it's on uh, Paramount Plus, Fresh Prince. And my wife just knew every line from that episode by heart. Oh. Well, tell her I said thank And then you moved on to Homeboys in Outer Space. And you really had a very good writing room in that, for yeah. that show because uh, I had Stu Kreisman on. And he was there. Yeah. 
Stuna's partner were on, and, and, and Gene and Reese and Lori Kimbrough, and, and a lot a lot of younger guys went on to to do a lot of good stuff. And Eric Van Lowe created the show, and, and uh, um, yeah, we had a lot of we had a lot of talent there. But talk about a conflict with a network. It was a Disney show. It was the WB. Uh, it was you know U, U, UPA. Remember UPA? Yeah, UPN. Yeah. And I think it was their UPA, and it was their one of their shows. And boy, was there interference there! And, and, and it was just, it was brutal. And, and, and I knew, a couple episodes in, that there's no way this show's going to last. I mean, if you think about it, the premise, is you have these two African American stars leads who are driving a garbage truck in the 23rd century. It's the future, it's space, right? And we're getting noted about, how can the zap gun make these people disappear? That doesn't make sense. Nothing has to make sense. We're in the 23rd century. We don't know what has to make sense. And then we get pitches from the uh, Disney executives. Um, I I won't name the one guy, I'd like to. who would pitch some racist shit like, um, well, how about our boys land on a white planet and teach them how to play basketball? I said, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want us to do? You know, stuff like that. What's weird is, did you ever see the show Quark? No. It was Buck Henry made it in 1979. It was t- took place in the 23rd century, and it was about the crew of a garbage Truck in space. What year was that? 1977. It was, oh, okay. it was when Star Wars came out. Right, right. I didn't. Yeah, but yeah, Stu Kreisman tells me that that's why he retired. That show made him retire. <laughs> yeah, we. It, yeah, it took its toll on a, on a lot of us. You know, and me too. And I, I you know, I had just finished uh, uh, running Fresh Prince for two for two seasons, almost two seasons, and and uh, I got a call from Eric Van Lowe, who I didn't know. Uh, uh, who had created the show, and he asked me to come on board, and I said, boy, that sounds like fun. Boy, I'd love to write, you know, write that stuff. It sounded, you know, we could just do whatever we wanted, you know? And without, and I, we've ne- I've never been noted on a show like on that one. So it just shook. It just shook. Although I've heard that James Duhan was a lot of fun to hang around with. We used, they used a lot of Star Trek guys. Uh, uh, Judge Takei was on there. And then you went to Boy Beats World. Hmm. For the last two seasons. The last three. Last three seasons. So he was already in college, and they were already married, or did they get married? No, no. They met, the, mar- the wedding was a big deal. We got married, I think, in the last season. Uh, it was one of the big shows. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, they were in college. You know, obviously they had to, they had to get to college. <laughs> they grew up, you know. But they, we brought Miss Afeni into the college, too, because we didn't right. want to what was your favorite episode of that show that you wrote? Uh, probably the uh, the alcohol episode uh, where uh, Corey and Topang and Corey are broken up. Uh, Corey starts to drink and he shows up at a party and he's the life of the party and he and Sean um, get drunk and then they get into trouble and uh, it, 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 it does touch upon problems with alcohol, but also I think it was a, a realistic portrayal of, of, of 
kids at that age. And that's what I tended to do with these shows. I said, can we, can we get a reality check here? Can we age these kids up? You know, they do get into trouble. I mean, one of the things that Will Smith, had, uh, his people had told me they were upset with before I took the show over was an episode where Carlton took drugs and not Will because they didn't feel, I said, there's nothing wrong with the lead guy doing it, you know, and, and, and that's one of the things Will Sparker, I said, I want you to get into trouble, you know, not the not the auxiliary characters, I want you to get into trouble, and, and uh, um, it happened with Corey too, and, and interestingly enough, that show did win a couple of awards, and Disney took it out of syndication because of the subject matter. And I think this day, it's it's not you can't see it on on mute. I know that it's one of those. There's a lot of podcasts that are called uh, a very special episode. Yeah, and, and they've gone through that show and said that you know, and the hosts are like, you know, this is good without being preachy. Right. And the other the other favorite of mine is is uh, when Sean's father dies. And again, boy, I sound like well, I read his drama, but um, that was very very uh, uh, satisfying, gratifying. And the cast was wonderful, and, and um, the dad died. You know, and the actor Chet, the character, died, and, and uh, they brought him back later in a fantasy sequence. You know, but uh, basically, uh, uh, it was dealing with the loss of your father, who you didn't have a good relationship with. And the the tragedy was the father was trying to reach out to him, and, and he died. Yeah, comedian Blake Clark. Yes, and you got to work with the other Lawrence brother. Yeah. I would say, you know what? I just realized when you said that, I work with the two Lawrence brothers. Right. And if you were to stay to give me a break, they introduced the younger, as the younger brother of Joy Lawrence in the, in the last had, season. It was bad. It was a bad season. I could have had the trifecta, three Lawrence brothers. <laughs> what were your thoughts about Meeton Meet Ward's career change? <laughs> uh, well, the, a, a bit of shock. <laughs> a bit of shock. Um, I mean, Maitland, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate Maitland because uh, I, I don't want to, I, you know, no. what, she, what she chooses to do, she chooses to do, but to tell me, if you told me that 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 she was going to become, you know, involved in, in the adult film world, I, I'd say, I think the panga would first, <laughs> Maitland was a, was a sweet girl, you know, and, and so, uh, very surprised. She was she was beautiful and uh, gorgeous. So is so Topanga. I mean, she's like uh, two years younger than me or something like that. Every 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 guy had a crush on Topanga. Well, how would you feel if, if Topanga went into the adult film world? I can't see that. <laughs> well, I couldn't see I couldn't see that with Maitland either. But uh, listen, I'm not judgmental. Whatever. No, whatever, no. Whatever floats your boat. I would. Yeah. Also. I didn't realize when I was watch I was watching the show. I was young. How much older in real life Angela was the actress who played Angela? She was in her like mid thirties. Yeah, she played young. I want to ask you about uh, Reba. Okay. <laughs> Careful now. No, I know. Um, actually, didn't watch it when it was on. There's something about shows with people with southern accents. Just I can't take it. <laughs> But uh, when they start, re they start, you know, it's on reruns constantly. And uh, thank God. <laughs> it's pretty good. I'm, I'm surprised. And uh, I was surprised because, like, you know, Nathan Lane couldn't pull off a sitcom. 
Reba McIntyre is going to pull off a sitcom, and she did. Well, you want a little history on the Reba show? I, I only did the first year. Um, my friend Allison Gibson, who uh, was co-writer on uh, Boy Meets World, she created the show, and she brought me on, uh, basically, uh, to work with her. But we had, uh, originally, she had Sally Field in the lead, and uh, Sally Field had another commitment, so she fell out, and then uh, Reba McIntyre pushed for the part and got it. And then also we have, we, I remember that we were, they were come, trying to come up with all kinds of titles for the show. And then finally, the, the Reba McIntyre said, let's call it Reba. And I remember thinking, uh-oh, once you have a show named after the person, that's going to be trouble. Um, and and uh, it, it was a, a tumultuous season. Um, and we, we uh, well, Alice and I weren't there at the end of the first season. So and we can go a deep dive into that. I've read the complaint. So, you know, by the way, it was Chip Keys, the guy I was thinking of before. Oh, okay. um, you worked with Bob Tischler. You wrote a book with Bob Tischler, who was a former guest. Yes. Um, so how did that come about that you just decided to write a novel and co-author well, we, it? We, we had originally uh, written a screenplay called Impossible, and we couldn't get much action on it. And so... Um, so maybe we would turn it into a book. Somebody will see the book and say, let's make it into a movie. So we're trying to do it that way. And then when it hit, it hit Amazon, like the first week or so, it, it soared to number one. And, but but we, we, we quickly learned that that doesn't mean anything in terms of making money. So the book's still on there. It's a, it's, it's a good, funny read. You know, we, we still like it. I think it still holds up, right? But I really enjoyed writing with Bob. Bob I met Bob on Boy Meets World, and we've been friends ever since. We've written some pilots together, screenplays, and, and the book. Got a lot of respect for the, the guy. He was the uh, executive producer of the National Lampoon Radio Hour. He was the head writer for four years at Saturday Night Live. I know that you were a you are a major sports fan. Major. And it was about ten years ago. You started making these videos to try to. I don't. I forgot what they. It was. An audition, sort of? Oh, I auditioned for TMZ. They had an opening for a sports report, so I made one video. I wrote the copy, you know, and basically, basically what I did was, uh, uh, again, it's a humorous presentation, which I actually did years ago, Roy Firestone's old show, Sports Talk, uh, uh, and, and, and I did a little five-minute uh, sports comedy segment at the end. It reminded me of the Norm Macdonald show, uh, sports comedy sports. Uh, I forgot what it was called, but they did it on Comedy Central, and it was about it was a half an hour, like basically weekend update about sports. Right. Besides the Yankees, what other teams do you root for? Well, um, football giants, if they're a team, uh, giant all, all New York teams, Knicks, Giants, Rangers. Uh, I've stayed true to, to my roots and all, you know. Uh, uh, and aside from the Yankees and a couple of Super Bowl wins from the Giants, uh, it, it's been pretty uh, pretty slim pickings. I don't understand why 50, 60 years later they're still called the New York Football Giants. Because the New York Baseball Giants haven't played a game since 1958. True. True. I don't know. I have no idea. I think it sounds more distinguished. Yeah. They need that. <laughs> they need help. But – it's funny that I'm a Detroit Lions fan because my dad my dad was a Detroit Lions fan because the owner of the Giants would not televise the games unless they were sellouts. 
So every Sunday, they would either show uh, they would show the black and blue division. They would show Lions, Packers, Lions, uh, uh, Bears, or Bears, Packers. So he chose the Lions because they were really good when he was ten in 1960. Good, so I, good team this year. Good team this year, four and one. Yeah. yeah. For some reason, my family is a Chicago Blackhawks fans. Uh, I have a couple good, good friends from Chicago, and they're, they're diehard Blackhawks fans. Um, my my parents lived in. Uh, my mother lived in this development where the Mets lived during the season, and the Jets. So she was like. Wahoo McDaniel's kids babysitter. And she got paid in Jets tickets. Oh. Which which she couldn't use because her job was to watch the kids during the game. Right. So my grandfather got to go to every Jet game for free the year they won the Super Bowl because my mother babysat the kids. There you go. You know, when I came out, I was a, a really insane Rangers hockey fan when I was growing up in New York. And we got out here and I was doing the sports show with Roy Firestone. He had season tickets to the Kings games that he didn't go to. So I, I went to every Kings game, you know, uh, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, great seats. We, I sat right behind the Kings wives and I never had those seats in the garden. The garden used to sit up in the balcony. I remember the old garden. If you were two, two if you were past row four in the upper balcony, you couldn't see half the ice. Uh, During the 94 uh, playoffs, I got to, my friend, his uncle was the usher at the Coliseum, so I got to watch Game Four of the uh, first round when they knocked the Islanders out. I got to see the whole game from the front row, and I realized it's not, it's not fun to watch hockey from the front row. You got to be up. Yeah, somebody was just discussing that the other day. Uh, yeah, a couple of rows back, even with basketball, you people envy everybody sitting on the floor, but that's really not the best vantage point. A couple of rows back is better. I mean, what, uh, just thinking of sports shows, one memory I do have as a kid, uh, I was at the 69 uh, uh, Knicks championship, game seven. The Willis Reed, uh, when Willis Reed came out, hobbled out, hit his first two shots, went to the bench, and then Wolf Frazier probably played the greatest game anybody's ever played in the history of basketball. Doesn't get enough acclaim for that. And the Knicks won their first championship. They won another championship. Three leave two leaders later. Right, well, thank you very much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. And do you have anything right now that you're employing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm retired, of course, but I still write. And I just, like I said, I just, uh, I, I really enjoyed finishing my screenplay in 1961, which, you know, has, it's a great year, of course, in baseball, too. And it's the lead character. He's obsessed with Roger Maris, not Mickey Mantle, because that's the year Roger hit 61 home runs. Uh, and coincidentally, it was 1961, 61-61. Um, so there are a couple of scenes shot at Yankee Stadium. The kids at Yankee Stadium for in the stands when Roger hits the home run, uh, and he almost catches it, and so on and so forth. Um, but I really, I, I, I'm trying to sell that. It's hard to shop. You know, once you don't have representation anymore and given the way the business is today. So um, a lot of times I'll go on social media and try and uh, entice uh, like a Rob Reiner or, or somebody of that ilk to try and read it. I'll, I'll post a, a, a scene occasionally, you know, uh, but but so far uh, nothing, you know, but you know. 
Yeah, just don't put an asterisk after the 61. Yeah, Billy Griffin was about the baseball. Right. baseball. This is about that year uh, in the life of this, this kid, these two best friends growing up in Brooklyn, uh, teenage kids. And, and uh, uh, it, it's got, I think it's got a lot, it's got, it's, it's got, it's a little bronze tailish, which we could talk about because I have a relationship with Chaz commentary too. Uh, but, but, because uh, he has a relationship with the local gangster, but it, it, that's not the major part of it. It's just about uh, that day, that time, and, and, and what it was like to, to live in Brooklyn in that year. And you're lucky you came out of Brooklyn before the summer of Sam. Well, I was actually teaching school. Oh, you were still there? Yeah, in, in Queens. And, and, and uh, yeah, uh, it was frightening. You know, people wouldn't go out. It was, it was very frightening. I come out here, and then there's the other guy, the Night Stalker, uh, Richard Ramirez. Good boy. You know? What about the blackout? Were you still there for the blackout, or were you in New York? Yeah, I was coming home from Brooklyn College for the blackout, and the, 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 the power went out on the train, and we had to walk on the train tracks, which was really scary because as kids growing up, we heard we always heard the legend of the third rail, and if you touch the third rail, you'd get electrocuted. And so here we were, here we were walking on the tracks, and uh, utter darkness, you know. Complete darkness. Well, wow. all right. Well, thank you very much. Okay, it's a pleasure. Nice talking to you.